Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. So a big part of what makes the show special is you, the listeners, our favorite people in the whole world. So since we love you so much, we're hoping that you can help us plan for our future by filling out just a really short survey. Your responses are supposed to help us understand who's listening to our podcast, what kinds of things that you like, and hopefully how we can get even more people to listen. So go to vox.com slash survey, that's vox.com slash survey, and you know, fill out the little survey thing and tell us about podcasts and your interests and how to make worldly and Vox Media podcasts better in general. Thanks so much for your help. It sounds like something out of a Tom Clancy novel, an Israeli private shadowy cybersecurity group selling software that can be used to spy on dissidents and journalists around the world by authoritarian governments under the guise of counterterrorism. Except it's it's all real, a massive investigation led by a consortium of journalists and researchers working from around the world has exposed the NSO group, which is an Israeli outfit, for its role in selling technology that has been abused by authoritarian governments to spy on journalists and other forms of dissidents. It's a massive, massive scandal that illustrates a lot of different features of contemporary politics, ranging from the ways in which digital repression is enabling new forms of authoritarian controls on thought to the ways in which pseudo-democratic governments manage to undermine freedom without making it look like that's what they're doing. So we're going to talk about all of these facets today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, back from a two-week vacation here with Jen Williams and Jen Kirby. Hello, the Jens. Hello. Hey. I'm I'm happy to be on with you. Uh, I'm going to have to train myself to use your last names, as usual, when, when Jen Kirby is, is guesting on our show. I'm coming to you from an undisclosed location in Canada. It's not actually a secret. I'm just visiting my wife's <laughs> family in Canada, um, which we, we can now do more easily thanks to laxer border restrictions, which is nice uh, for vaccinated people. Vaccines are important. Go get your shot. Worldly fans in Canada, Canadian worldly listeners, we're here. Hello, or at least one third of the show is here currently. <laughs> yeah, literally the rest of us are not there. We're no, you know, yeah, you guys are <laughs> back in DC and New York. Speaking of international travels, let's <laughs> let's talk about uh, Great this, this segue, traveling <laughs> software. Look, I'm sorry, okay, I've been driving for like two straight days. My brain's a little fuzzy. It's uh, all good. It's <laughs> Fuzzy like the law around international flyware. That was mm. worse. I didn't yes, think it was, it was possible to get worse. Much worse. <laughs> that, was, that was way worse. 
<laughs> wow. I aim to please, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Okay, so we're not going to let you talk for a little bit. Fair Kirby, enough. why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the NSO group and what the software that it's been selling to different governments does? I don't have any fun puns, but... Uh, the <laughs> <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't fun. That was an abuse of the English language. <laughs> so essentially, there is this Israeli security firm known as the NSO Group. And according to an investigation, which was led by Amnesty International and Forbidden Stories, which is a Paris-based organization, and about 16 other media organizations around the world, The Guardian, Washington Post, and plenty of others, According to this investigation they did on this group, they got a list of about 50,000 phone numbers. And through some investigation, they were able to discover that some of these phone numbers belong to human rights activists, journalists, business leaders, dissidents, all kinds of people around the world who were targeted by this NSO group software. And I am not a tech person, but I will try my best to explain what the software basically is. It's called Pegasus, and it's basically like a malware, and it can go on people's phones. It's a little bit kind of murky exactly how it gets on there, but what NSO, I guess, bills itself as allowing them to sort of send a message, and the user doesn't even need to click. And they could get this basically spyware on their phone, which would allow whoever is watching to intercept messages, to potentially record phone calls, to listen in, to get potential geographic data. So basically, basically spying on somebody through their cell phone. Now, we should make some caveats, of course, which is that the NSO group denies that some of these numbers necessarily, they say that it's an exaggerated number. But what researchers did was they honed in on a few of them, specifically 67 cell phone numbers. And 37 of them, they found, had this Pegasus malware on it, which indicates that there was some sort of active surveillance or spying going on. And what makes this, you know, kind of the crazy story, as you guys said, is like, who is doing the spying and who are the clients of the NSO? and Right now, NSO Group says it can't, you know, disclose its clients. But according to this investigation, some of the clients were governments that have a not so great track record on human rights and who very much might want to know what journalists and dissidents are up to, like Mexico, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Hungary. And there's about, I think, 10 total countries. So that's sort of the, I guess, the lay of the land. And then from this investigation, there are spiraling, spiraling, spiraling stories, which we can get into. I mean, what, what what's interesting to me about the sort of technical aspects of it is that typically with spyware, as, as Kirby just alluded to, you need to click on something, right? And apparently, according to some of the reporting, Pegasus can infect you that way through a link that's disguised as something you might otherwise want to click on, like a, a work communication or an email from a source to a journalist or something like that. Right, And so you click on the link, and that is what allows the malware to get on your phone. It's striking that Pegasus seems not to require that. It has some other way that I don't actually understand that it can get into your phone without you having to use it, which is a real game changer, right? Because a lot of what we are taught as journalists uh, in protecting ourselves from cyber surveillance hacking and so on, which is a really regular concern for people who operate oftentimes and generate the ire of governments, is that you you just be really careful about what you click on 
And for the most part, discretion can prevent you or at least protect you to some significant degree from being compromised. And so people who work in contexts where government surveillance is a more significant threat than it is in the United States, uh, right, in some place like the UAE, where, you know, there's a very, very repressive government that is not interested in tolerating large amounts of dissent, to put it mildly, you know, they're going to be really, really, really careful and really schooled in the different ways to evade, you know, phishing uh, with a PH, which is what this kind of attack is when you somebody sends you a link and they try to get you to click on it. That technique is is avoidable, but if they can get on your phone in some other way, and the NSO group is selling it to governments who have an interest in abusing this, the implications are pretty profound in terms of freedom of the press, civil society, right? There have been reports of not just reporters, but also people who are, you know, dissidents and activists in various different civil society spaces, like free speech, human rights defenders, the, those sorts of people being targets in these things. They get, they get verified through a program a system that the Amnesty International and the reporting consortium that covers this stuff is set up to figure out whether or not your phone has been compromised. In fact, before this episode, Jen Williams and I were having a conversation about whether I needed to get my phone checked out because I'd done a significant amount of reporting on the Hungarian government and its abuses of human rights and, and democratic rules. And, and I've been there and, and they, you know, journalists who work on the ground there get targeted. And it turns out that U.S. phones apparently can't be compromised by this system. So I probably don't have to worry. But the point is that, like, this is the implications of this. Like, if I were using, say, my my UK-based phone while I was in Hungary, which I have, but I don't, I don't particularly use unless I'm in the UK, I, that could have been compromised. So it really is, in terms of, like, the, the global media and civil society environment, a profound threat if it's being abused. NSO Group is supposed to only sell for counterterrorism and law enforcement purposes. This is way beyond the ambit of what they are they are they claim to be doing. Yeah, and I just want to kind of give the the NSO group's kind of statements here. The company uh, has said it quote has no insight into the specific intelligence activities of the the clients to whom they lease this spyware. So they basically like they make the spyware and then they you know lease it. They sell it to all these different clients. They say that they vet the clients right. That they make sure that they're you know specifically selling this to them for counterterrorism purposes, like you said, for security, for law enforcement, um, but that they don't, you know, know what they they use it for. And they said, quote, every allegation about misuse of the system is concerning to me. That's uh, from the CEO of the company. They said that in the past 12 months, they've terminated two contracts over allegations of human rights abuses. They say that they're investigating this, et cetera. However, I would have to say that given the some of the people they are selling this to, it really shouldn't come as much of a surprise that they might be using it for clear human rights abuses because you don't sell really, really high-end military-grade spyware to the Saudi government and not know they're probably going to use it in a way that's maybe not totally on the up and up, right? According to these reports, uh, the Saudis actually use this to hack into the phone of Jamal Khashoggi's wife, remember the Saudi dissident uh, this, that the Saudi government had executed, um, they assassinated in the, the Saudi embassy in Turkey. Apparently, just you know, days after that, they hacked into the phone of Jamal Khashoggi's wife. So that's completely terrifying. And, you know, there are other really just 
disturbing things beyond just like the dissidents and and journalists, which like that alone is incredibly disturbing for, you know, free speech and for freedom of the press and for the ability of journalists and activists to hold their governments accountable. There's also just some really creepy stuff. So Princess Latifah of the UAE fled from her father on a yacht in 2018. Um, She was eventually recaptured and taken back to India. But she was claiming that she had been subjected to inhumane treatment by her dad, including beatings and solitary confinement. And apparently she's one of the people whose phones were hacked in by the government. So as, as bad as it is, not even just journalists and the kind of broader free speech thing. It's also like they can be used for anything. You know, if, if a if a random government official has access to the spyware and wants to spy on, you know, his ex-girlfriend or his wife or his daughter, like that is terrifying to me. So I think just the, the potential uses and abuses of this technology is staggering. And, you know, this is a company founded by people who were affiliated with the Israeli military and security forces. And, you know, remember, uh, Israel has conscriptions. So, you know, lots of, of people are conscripted into the Israeli military and, you know, intelligence services and then, you know, come out and, and don't necessarily want to have a, a career in the military intelligence services, but they have all this knowledge. And Israel is also very much a, a tech kind of innovation hub and is, you know, celebrates that fact. And they also have a lot of interests in counterterrorism and spying for its own kind of domestic and foreign policy resources. So um, kind of all of that put together brings this company that has like really, really high tech military grade stuff that we're talking about here. And what's interesting to me, we can talk about this more um, in the second half. I know we will talk about, you know, what this means, but there are questions that are now being asked about, you know, does the Israeli government, did the Netanyahu government, you know, the previous Israeli government, how much did they know about this company, about their software, about their clients? You know, there's a lot of speculation that, like, it seems unlikely that an Israeli, you know, private company with this level of technology would be selling to governments like the Saudis and the Emiratis without at least the tacit approval of the Israeli government, because that's really sensitive. So I think there are a lot of questions being raised by this massive investigation. And kudos to the journalists and activists and reporters and researchers who worked on this. It's a massive, sprawling investigation that's been going on for months. Um, And just to be clear, you know, that list of numbers, it's not like they just got this list and jumped to the conclusion that, well, all these people were hacked in. They then went and, like, looked at the actual phones, many of these, like Jen said, on this list and checked. There's a tool you can use to check for this spyware and found that many of them had been compromised. There were many others that showed that, like, they maybe tried to compromise it but hadn't quite gotten in. And then there were a bunch of others that were kind of inconclusive. So, again, there's so much detail and research into this. It's it's pretty solid story that this is what happened. So, uh, Jenna, one thing I, I want to add to that, which I think is, is, is very significant, is that in order for the NSO group to sell this stuff internationally in the way they've been doing, they require an export license from the Israeli government, right? And the export license, according to the Israeli Defense Ministry, requires that they be sold to quote-unquote government figures only for legal purposes and to prevent and investigate crimes and to combat terrorism. And this is dependent upon commitments regarding the end-use user from the purchasing country, which must abide by these conditions. So in theory, right, there's supposed to be some agreement that this technology is not being abused. However, (laughs) 
that's what are they, like, totally the unenforceable. Pink, yeah, like, swear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you sell it to the Saudis, and they're like, yeah, we won't use it to to target dissidents, right? First of all, in those governments, dissidents often do just get reclassified as terrorists. Yes, exactly. Right? In, in in this sort of authoritarian apparatus. Second. The Israeli Defense Ministry, according to the Times of Israel, a story written on July 19th, that it refuses to say whether it's going to investigate the claims internally. Right? It just, you know, it's like, well, it would be very bad if they violated them. NSO Group would get in trouble with us. And that, to me, it's like it's not proof or anything, but it certainly indicates that the Israeli government is not all that concerned about the abuse of this technology by the governments that it was sold to. If NSO Group had been selling to Iran, that would be very different. <laughs> but it's not. Like if Imagine you look at the- applying for that export license. <laughs> right, 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 right. Sell advanced, uh, essentially what's an advanced cyber intrusion weapon, an espionage weapon to our arch rival. No, it's not like that. Like look at the list of states, right? Some of the prominent ones include Saudi Arabia, the UAE, which Israel has fairly close relations with, if not openly in the case of Saudi Arabia, but they cooperate very closely in a lot of security matters. And then India and Hungary, which have become fairly close, or at least became fairly close to Israel under uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's rule, because he found uh, a lot in common with the sort of right-wing populist authoritarian leaders in those countries. Uh, and so it, it it would make sense that as part of, in fact, there's there's one report in the Guardian about the use in India that suggests that the use of the NSO Group's technology in India began after a face-to-face -face meeting between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Again, not proof that this was the Israeli government's making some kind of deal that you can do this, but certainly circumstantial evidence that the abuse was part of the overall design of the sale. Yes. And maybe to add to that, there was also a report in the Washington Post with anonymous U.S. and EU officials who basically said, you know, they suspect that the Israeli government is also potentially benefiting from some of the intelligence that the NSO group collects. For example, um, a former senior U.S. national security official told the Post, it's crazy to think that NSO wouldn't share sensitive national security information with the government of Israel. So that's also another kind of wrinkle in this, which is this sort of front of a private company that's contracting to these, you know, below board, shall we say, on sort of human rights records, um, records of democracy, but then also coming it back to, you know, Israel's own security apparatus, which is also a troubling addition to the story, if true. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I think it, to be fair, the state of Israel and the defense ministry did add in its statement that they said, quote, it is important to note that the state of Israel does not have access to the information collected by the NSO group's customers. So that is their official statement. Take that for what you will. What strikes me here is not so much that the Israeli government is getting intelligence and using very advanced cyber weapons to do so, or cyber surveillance tools, depending on how you classify them. Like, of course they do that, right? It's a very technologically advanced country that has a very, very powerful and significant security apparatus. What's interesting to me is the sort of suggestion in the story that there is, first of all, clear private involvement here, like a private company that has some links to the state. And second, the idea that there was from a government that, by the way, a big part of its self-identity 
and the way that it describes itself as being a democratic government that is colluding with uh, anti-democratic or uh, anti-democratic populists and authoritarian rulers, like outright openly authoritarian rulers, in figuring out ways to help them if not, you know, saying, here, we'll help you control your dissidents. It's giving them a technology that can easily be abused to do so under the guise of counterterrorism without, you know, there being any kind of control to prevent them from doing so. Because as, you know, Jen, you just suggested a few minutes ago, there is no such control that one could impose on this. There's no way to write into the technology for terrorists only, <laughs> right? right? It doesn't operate that way. So, Are you a terrorist? Check yes or no. All right. Yeah, like then the very we can spy on you. The very fact of the sale indicates a, at least a willingness to aid in authoritarian projects by a democratic government. And again, this is not new exactly, right? Like think about the entire foreign policy record of the United States during the Cold War. When it's geopolitically convenient, democratic governments are perfectly willing to aid in foreign repression. What is striking about this is how subtle it is, right? How it's gone through this third-party cutout how it, you know, it took a massive journalistic expose to even come up with the beginnings of the evidence as to how this kind of repression was happening. It's not like there were Israeli troops helping the UAE round up protesters, right? It's, it's, it's just a very different kind of repression. Yeah, and I think just to the point on Israel, um, just kind of not to put too fine a point on it here, but there's a really interesting piece, and we can link to it in the show notes uh, in Haaretz, about how this organization, specifically NSO Group, this company, is kind of sold to the Israeli public by the Israeli press, by the Israeli media. This is not the first time that NSO Group has been called out for questionable practices like this. Um, it is just the most sprawling, biggest investigation. But this, you know, this has popped up here and there before. And according to this article, every time that that happens, fairly quickly, NSO Group and their CEO tend to show up in fairly rosy articles and profiles and interviews in the Israeli press that really focus on, look at the good work we're doing in counterterrorism and keeping the world safe from terrorists, and portraying it as, like I said earlier, this you know, Israeli success story, these these young, ambitious startup people who went from serving their country in the military and intelligence services to starting this really important tech firm that is, you know, also making money and making a name for Israel in the tech space, as well as doing good work in counterterrorism and how for the first time, really, this huge, sprawling, you know, expose really is causing some to question that narrative they've been kind of sold over and over. Like, wait a second, are we the bad guys? And like, that's an important question to be asking when Israel, you know, they, they characterize their military as, you know, the most moral army in the world, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, their practices certainly call that into question in many areas. Um, but I think it's really important to kind of understand that even, you know, the Israeli kind of public has seems to have been somewhat misled as to what this company is really doing. And I think it's a bit of a wake-up call. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk about this more, but I'm also just concerned, like, now that this is out there, like, what do you do, right? Because you can, you know, maybe tell this company to stop doing that. Don't sell this to any more countries, you guys. But, like, if you have these tools, 
first of all, I don't know, you know, I, again, I'm not a tech person either. I don't know how easy it is to replicate it if you have this software, you know, if there are really smart people in Hungary or India or Saudi Arabia who can then, you know, take the code and break it down and figure out a way to do it themselves uh, and replicate it and create their own versions. But like, it's out there, right? Like, how do you put this all back inside the black box, right? Like, it's out there. And it seems like this is just the new reality of digital authoritarianism. And that, to me, is terrifying. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to expand on that point, talking about the political implications of what the NSO group has done and what it says about its clients, some of the governments that chose to purchase it. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure, a good souvenir is always fun. But it's the experiences that people love the most about traveling. When you get back home, that t-shirt might fade and that snow globe might break, but it's those once-in-a-lifetime memories that will last. Viator is a website and app where you can book travel experiences like architectural sightseeing, snorkeling excursions, sunset cruises, and so much more. With Viator, you can reserve everything from simple tours to thrilling adventures with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries. Whether you're a foodie, a history buff, or an adrenaline junkie, there's something for everyone. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you can have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. When you book a travel experience with Viator, there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation, payment options, and 24-7 service. Make memories that will last forever with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Welcome back, world listeners. Uh, during the break, we talked about X's and fake nails. Um, <laughs> that that's actually true. It was it was a really really fun short interlude for us. And now we're going to go back to talking about something that is uh, significantly less than great, uh, which is to say, surveillance of journalists and dissidents uh, by authoritarian governments using uh, fancy new digital tools. Now, those of you who are Vox podcast completists may know that I did an interview <laughs> with uh, Stephen Feldstein, a professor who wrote a book called The Rise of Digital Repression earlier this year. The interview is for Vox Conversations, uh, which is our excellent interviews podcast. I guess I'm sort of tooting my own horn here by saying that I was on the excellent podcast. Whatever. Not important. <laughs> That's all right. uh, anyway, it's an excellent it, podcast and you do excellent interviews. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. But part of the reason that I was uh, you know, excited to, to do this interview with Stephen is that it, it's a really interesting question you know, how digital technologies enable repression in the context of another one of my own personal hobby horses, which is uh, democratic decline and the rise of pseudo-democratic, really authoritarian states that look like democracies on the outside but control dissent through some more subtle means. You know, one of the themes in his book is that this kind of government, he uses uh, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines as a case study here, 
uh, they tend not to rely principally on the sort of more overtly authoritarian tools of digital repression, you know, like spying on people to arrest them under pretext when they're dissidents. And, and they're more likely to use, at least publicly, things like, you know, spreading misinformation that undermines the opposition or getting teams of like online brigands and privateers to mob your opponents and amplify the spread of your misinformation and that sort of thing. You know, muddying the waters rather than outright repressing people using digital technology. The effect is the same, right? You make it difficult for people to access real and accurate information online, but you do so in a more subtle fashion than just like surveilling someone's email and then using that as a pretext to arrest them. What this revelation, specifically as it relates to Hungary and India, two governments that I think can fairly be classified as in various stages of democratic decline, Hungary declined, and India in, in serious trouble, is that quietly the, the governments here were using tools that one would associate with outright traditional authoritarian states, spying on their opponents, period. For what purpose? It's actually not clear from the reporting right now. But like I, you know, I was looking through the list of people who had been spied on in those countries, and there were names I recognized, right? Like a Hungarian journalist I've had contact with. The lead political strategist for India's TMC party, which was the lead opposition to the government in West Bengal, which is a really important state that had a, a pivotal regional election earlier this year, right? It's like these are notable targets. And the government was attempting to compile – their governments were seemingly attempting to compile dirt on or at least to learn about their activities. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. You know, Again, we don't know specifically what they were doing, um, but it's, it's not hard to kind of guess what you could potentially do with this kind of access, right? So like you said, one of the people on this list is a political strategist for uh, the opposition party, the, the party that defeated Modi's party in that West Bengal election earlier this year. So you can imagine a political strategist, you know, in the run-up to election, if you have access to things like turning on their microphone on their cell phone remotely without them knowing it, listening into their actual conversations, well, you can learn what their strategy is. You can learn where they're trying to target voters here and there. You can learn if they have dirt on you that they're getting ready to release maybe and get out in front of it. Similarly, you know, things like journalists listening to, you know, the Hungarian journalist that, that you mentioned, Zach turning on their microphone. Well, what if they're meeting with the source? What if they're discussing very, you know, sensitive information or a big, you know, explosive story they're about to to publish on corruption, you know, say in the Orban government or something like that, or someone tied to Orban or a crony, right? Again, I'm just, there's no evidence of this. I'm just uh, speculating here, but you can see how that could be really advantageous information to have if you are spying. You can potentially destroy documents. Again, you can get out in front of these things. Or you can, you know, gin up charges yourself and arrest them so that they can't, you know, publish these stories, et cetera. So just the degree of the chilling effect that it has, we as journalists all take standard precautions using sometimes encrypted messaging and stuff like that. But I guess now we have to, you know, make sure a lot of us will still take our cell phones if we're meeting with the source or whatever, right, and put them in another room just in case. Uh, I know many journalists who do that. But sometimes I feel like we're being like cuckoo, right? It's like, all right, nobody's listening in on your phone. Come on. But like, uh, actually, turns out they might be. And it's really disturbing, you know, again, going back to the, the, the free speech and freedom of the press, the ability of the press to hold 
governments and officials and people in power to account is one of the most fundamental pillars of democracy. And if journalists who are doing this work feel like they are being targeted, feel like they can't do this work, that will have a serious chilling effect on democracy. And that is incredibly, incredibly troubling. Yeah. And I think, you know, as as we said, these clients uh, that NSO worked with, allegedly, India and Hungary, Saudi Arabia, these places do not have a great track record. So the idea that they had no clue that maybe these tools could have been used that way is one way. But I think what's really interesting about this is like, you know, repressive governments have always had tools to stifle free speech, to stifle opposition. And they are high tech, but, you know, they may be a little bit more labor intensive, you know, having to follow somebody in a car or something like that, which when you are ostensibly a democratic government is a really bad look. But what this software does, it makes it so easy to track the people that you want. And so what it does, though, is create this kind of kind of circular effect where you have countries that are sort of on the democratic backside or democratic decline whose ability to use the software further cements that democratic backsliding because, as Jen said, you cannot meet with the source uh, in the government if it's a risk to them and their livelihood, which makes it harder to do the work of journalism. If opposition parties who are trying to already against very long odds are trying to challenge the government in power, if their political strategy is being leaked, then they can't do it. So having this tool at the disposal of governments that are already predisposed to cracking down on democratic institutions makes it a hell of a lot easier to crack down on those democratic institutions, thereby solidifying the slide to authoritarianism. One thing that's important about this is that Uh, Jen Williams, a second ago, you were talking about a chilling effect. It's worth unpacking that because a traditional chilling effect, right, is like when you know that there's a threat or a risk of censorship, right? And you're you're you know a journalist or a dissident or a you know a human rights activist or something, and you're working around that. But this was not done openly, right? It wasn't done with an attempt to intimidate directly and publicly right, in the way that some of these governments do, right? If you're operating in Saudi Arabia, you know that uh, you can't say any everything that you think or what you want to think because the government will come after you. Uh, and that's true in other ways, in more subtle ways, in, in Hungary, for example, that there are real risks to crossing the government. But this tool wasn't used as part of the open intimidation regime that you have in some of these states. It, in fact, what makes it so insidious is that it was done in secret, that it was sold secretly, it was done under the guise of counterterrorism and of law enforcement, and then was weaponized to provide information that could be used covertly by these governments. We, we don't know how they used it or in what forms yet. So again, anything that we say about that will be speculation. But the point is they had the capacity to blackmail to undermine political strategies in the way that Kirby was just talking about by knowing exactly what they're trying to do, to use law enforcement in corrupt ways, to punish people based on the information that they acquired, to threaten their family members. And all of that, to me, suggests that in places like like India and Hungary, the governments, which who do have apologists, uh, both in domestically and in the West, who think that they're not walking down the anti-democratic path that many of us are worried that they are, 
These governments want the capacities of a traditional repressive state, but they don't want the reputational costs that are associated with it because domestically their legitimacy depends on the perception that they remain democratically elected and supported by the majority of people in those countries. And like to a certain extent that is true. There are large – certainly in India, right? The Modi government has been pretty popular for most of the, the time that his BJP party has held power. But – it means that the line between what political scientists call competitive authoritarian state, which is this type of government that still holds elections that matter to a degree and so on, and like an authoritarian authoritarian state like Saudi Arabia, is blurrier than we might otherwise admit, right? That there are ways in which these countries that still claim to be democracies are taking on the really typical hallmarks of an out-and-out authoritarian state. Yeah, that's a really good point, Zach. There's another kind of aspect to this I want to explore just a bit before we end. And that's, you know, digital privacy activists have for years and years been warning about this exact threat. Because, you know, we think about this again, this was a counterterrorism law enforcement tool. And if you think about it in just those terms, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? You can, I would like to prevent terror attacks from happening, you know, and especially in the post 9-11 kind of security state, even in the U.S., we saw a massive expansion of, you know, NSA spying software and capabilities, et cetera. Um, and a lot of times, you know, national crises and emergencies and just the broader kind of conception of threat, the war on terror, et cetera, are used to create these kinds of tools. And sometimes they're not even created in a way that is meant to be used uh, for nefarious purposes, right? Sometimes, you know, think about facial recognition technology, et cetera. Like, yeah, that's, you know, one, it's really helpful for me to log into my iPhone by just looking at my phone with my face. Um, it's very helpful when I'm riding my bike because I don't stop and type in the password. All these kinds of tools, they can be created for legitimate purposes. You know, spying on, you know, criminal gangs, et cetera, and catching bad guys. <laughs> and yet... Digital privacy activists have been warning for years, this technology, you can't put a lock on it. Like you said, you can't just say, oh, you know, only for terrorists, make sure they're not a journalist. You can't use it. There's no like way to code that in. And so, you know, they've been warning for a long time that we need to think before we get all this technology in the stage where we're creating this stuff to stop and think, what are we going to be using this for? And could it be used in other ways that undermine the foundations of a democratic open society? And I think, you know, as a government, you know, the U.S. apparently has said that it doesn't use this, this software. Um, I'm, <laughs> I have no evidence to, to support this, but I'm just guessing it's probably because we have stuff that's even better um, <laughs> or, or equal. Anyway, again, no evidence for that, but I'm just saying, it's unlikely that this is the only company in the world that has this technology, just to be clear. You know, if one company figured it out, it's probably not too long until other people figure it out. But, you know, if I'm a government and I am legitimately concerned about terrorism or crime, et cetera, it's really attractive to have this kind of really powerful tool at your disposal. The problem is that where do you put in those safeguards to make sure that someone who has access to this you know, whether purposely or just, you know, a rogue actor in the government, right, taking this technology and this tool and using it to spy on an ex or, you know, to use this to cyber stalk uh, someone they don't like or who turned them down for a date or whatever it is, right? Or, you know, 
governments to actively use it to target dissidents and journalists and opponents. There's no way to really keep those controls. And so we need to figure out mechanisms now. Like I said, you can't put this back in the box, but there are very smart people who work in this field who say that there are, you know, regulations and laws that can be put in place both at the national and international levels to try to at least have some sort of accountability and oversight of what's going on. But you also, we just need to be thinking about this. So I I just, it's kind of like a, a clarion call that when there's a terror attack or when there's a national security threat, that's the time when we need to be really aware when governments are calling for more power, for calling for expanded surveillance powers and authorities, that that's the time when we feel like maybe we're under threat. And again, I'm thinking of the post 9-11 era where, you know, Americans just kind of were like, threw up our hands, like, yeah, you should definitely be able to, you know, have all these powers because we're scared about getting attacked again. That's the time when you have to be really careful because then you end up, you know, all these years later and here we are and this really powerful technology is being used to genuinely undermine the democratic foundation of an open society. I think, too, it's also interesting to think about in this age of COVID, where one of the kind of more potent tools for being able to contract trace was using your phone. And you do see these kinds of these struggles uh, with privacy advocates and sort of how do you balance the public safety and and the public interest of the private interest of having your privacy protected. And throughout reading this whole story, I just kept thinking over and over again, like, how do we hold people accountable? Because, you know, when a government does this, you know, I'm thinking of China, which, you know, is probably the number one offender when it comes to digital authoritarianism in terms of surveillance. There are ways to sort of sanction a government to call them out. But the fact that this is through a private company that is basically contracting out to governments makes it really hard to figure out a way to hold these governments and their actions accountable and also figuring out a way to regulate private industry. And I don't necessarily have a good answer to it. I know advocates on this, as Jen said, I've been talking a lot about this for many, many years, you know, a digital human rights convention or something like that. But I really think the story in a way, in the same way sort of the NSA surveillance did, but this on sort of a new level really puts into context just sort of we are in very, very strange territory. And we, even as as journalists and people who cover international affairs, are in a very kind of brave, strange new world when it comes to how these, these tools are being used. And I think it will be interesting to see what happens if there is any reaction to this on the international level or national level, or if this story kind of just sort of fades into the distance and NSO and, and other organizations like it go back to doing what they're doing. Yeah, actually, I just want to jump in really quickly and add your point on COVID is so incredibly prescient because it actually turns out that the current prime minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, who was previously defense minister, actually proposed partnering with NSO Group to use this software to monitor Israelis' phones and their movements to track COVID. They ended up not going with that plan. Probably a good call, you know, but like, lucky them that they decided against that. But that's literally one of the things they were considering, which is so disturbing because again, you know, as I was saying, when there's a time of crisis like COVID, you're like, okay, well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah, we should probably make sure that we know where COVID is spreading. We have phones. That's a great idea until it isn't, (laughs) until we end up with, uh uh-oh, the government can hear everything I'm saying because they tapped into my microphone. Whoops. So on that whoops, uh uh-oh note, 
we're gonna we're gonna leave you. Uh, welcome back to the Worldly Podcast. Uh, <laughs> also, I just want to jump in quickly. Thank you, Jen Kirby, for her two amazing interviews that yeah, she did. Great work. Um, it's just phenomenal work, and I hope uh, Worldly listeners enjoyed a, a bit of a break from the the panel format um, and a bit of experimentation. But uh, Jen, thanks for just totally stepping up and and doing really awesome work. And thanks to our guests who put up with my questions for a very long time um, and were <laughs> wonderful interviews, Inez Cantor and Michael Bustamante. So, <laughs> so uh, I, as is my typical role, will encourage you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. And I will be coming back to you all from Canada again next week uh, with the team. So we'll, we'll see you then. Bye. Adios.